This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus the NSA playing nice, HIPAA settlement review, and some HIPAA education. This is episode 13. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawashtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, we start this show off like we start every weekly episode off with... Our Patch Tuesday update, and there is quite a bit of news. So we already told you last week about um, Microsoft releasing January 2020 Office updates that involved crash fixes. We told you about Firefox 72.0.1, and then we reported, I believe, the week before that Python 2.7 reached end of life. So this week was the end of life for Windows 7, and... um, as a result, of course, Tuesday, Tuesday, January 14th, there were some patches released, and I'm going to go through all of the all of the software and hardware that has patching available for this week. So Oracle released January 2020 security bulletin. There, uh, allegedly, there was this is the most releases from Oracle they've ever had security releases patching patching updates that they've ever done in one month. So that's interesting. Adobe released security updates primarily for Illustrator CC. Uh, VMware released security updates. Intel released security updates. Microsoft released a bunch of security updates, and we're going to talk a little later on in the episode about how the NSA actually warned them of a, a critical vulnerability. So more of a more of the, um, the China play nice, I guess you could say. Um, so that's interesting that they're doing that. Citrix, uh, there was an advisory. There's a utility now available for the Citrix vulnerability that we've reported on. So Citrix ADC and Citrix Gateway vulnerabilities, different, a uh, few different versions. There is a vulnerability that is still unpatched, but there is a utility to check whether or not you are, um, your, if your uh, environment is vulnerable. So go check that out on the Citrix site. Uh, let's quickly talk about what is being patched for Microsoft. So again, Windows 2007, I'm sorry, Windows 7, not 2007. Windows 7 is no longer going to be supported, and Server 2008 is no longer going to be supported. So you will need to update those systems. Uh, critical, I'm only going to talk about critical patches, critical vulnerabilities being addressed by Microsoft here. .NET Framework has uh, several critical vulnerabilities addressed. ASP.NET has a vulnerability, it's a critical vulnerability being addressed, and um, RDP, once again, with a few vulnerabilities being addressed. I I, uh, have been recommending as much as possible that if you use remote desktop, if you use remote desktop, make sure you're doing it in a secure manner over VPN, 
or third-party utilities to lock it down further or internally only to block block uh, external access to it. If you don't use it, turn it off and don't use it. Use um, use another method of, of remoting in. Okay, finally, Google did update Chrome to address the vulnerability in Windows with the, the report that NSA reported Windows Crypto API flaw. So Google has released 79, Google Chrome 79.0.3945.130, which will detect certificates that attempt to exploit the, the NSA discovered CVE 2020-0601, which again is the crypto API Windows vulnerability. So update Chrome, update Windows 10, and uh, stay safe. All right, pretty light week for news. Um, so let's get started. The big news anyway. So there was lots of little little things going on, but not a lot of big topics. So uh, first up, this is this is only impactful to Europe, according to this article. I have not been able to confirm whether the U.S. is impacted by this, but hundreds of millions of cable modems are vulnerable to new cable haunt vulnerability. So the cable modems using Broadcom chips are vulnerable to a new vulnerability named Cable Haunt. Uh, it's report that 200 million modems in Europe are impacted by this. It does not say anything about the U.S. This is on ZDNet, by the way. Uh, the vulnerability code named Code Haunt is believed to impact an estimated 200 million code, uh, cable modems in Europe alone. So that, you know, that comment, it's hard to understand whether or not the U.S. is impacted by that. Um, the vulnerability impacts a standard component of Broadcom chips called Spectrum Analyzer. This is a hardware and software component that protects the cable modem from signal surges and disturbances co coming via the coax cable. The component is, is often used by internet service providers in debugging connection quality. On most cable modems, access to this component is limited for the connections from the internal network. The research team says Broadcom chip spectrum analyzer lacks protection against DNS rebinding attacks, uses default credentials, and also contains a programming error in its firmware. So researchers say that by tricking users into accessing a malicious page via their browser, they can use the browser to relay an exploit to the vulnerable component and execute commands on the device. So it involves a little bit of phishing and um, a little bit of manipulation, but asking, you know, I could see phone calls from the alleged cable company saying, hey, navigate to this page where there's an issue with your cable modem, type in this web address, we'll get this fixed up for you. I mean, I got a, a call from, from someone claiming to be Microsoft today. Um, by the way, those are not, if you get a call from Microsoft, it's not real. Um, so, Using the cable haunt attack, an attacker could change the default DNS server, conduct remote man-in-the-middle attacks, which can be dangerous, hot swap code, or even the entire firmware, or even a remote uh, default DNS server could be dangerous. Um, upload, flash, and upgrade firmware silently. Disable ISP firmware upgrade. Change every config file and settings. Set, get and set SNMP OID values, change all associated MAC addresses, change serial numbers, and be exploited in a botnet. There is a proof of concept available, so you'll want to get that addressed. Uh, I don't know that there's a patch for that, so you'll want to get the, um, you want to make sure you're not getting tricked into navigating to um, any web pages that 
that somebody randomly calls up for. This is fishing at its best, vishing, we'll call it. And it has a list of modems here, so I'm going to read them real quick. Sagecom Fast 3890, Sagecom Fast 3686, Technicolor TC7230, Netgear C6250 EMR, Netgear CG3700 EMR, Netgear CG37, oh, I said that already, Sagecom Fast 3890, Sagecom Fast 3686. Um, these, are, oh, these are with different firmware uh, versions as well. So Compal 7284E, Compal 7486E, and Netgear CG3700 EMR. I would imagine there'll be um, firmware patches for that shortly, so stay tuned for that. All right, so I found this on law.com. Uh, this was January 6th, so it's a couple weeks old, but anticipating the first cybersecurity enforcement action by NYDFS. A number of traditional factors that animate decisions about enforcement point to a likelihood in the near term of an enforcement proceeding against one of one or more regulated entities for a violation of DFS cybersecurity regulation known as Part 500. So we've been talking about how data breaches are going to become more and more um that uh our privacy laws are going to become more and more important so you have gdpr in europe we have ccpa in, in in california more states are going to start enforcing these types of things the question gets asked quite frequently in, in regulatory circles will the new york state department of financial services bring an enforcement action under its cybersecurity regulation and if so when the probable answers are yes and soon. As discussed below, a number of traditional factors that animate decisions about enforcement point to a likelihood in the near term of an enforcement proceeding against one or more regulated entities for the violation of the DFS cybersecurity regulation known as Part 500. Background on Part 500 first issued in March of 2017. Part 500 contained a two-year implementation period, so obviously two years is now up and has been fully effective for approximately nine months. Generally regulated institutions must implement and maintain a robust robust cybersecurity program, including such core components as a written policy approved by the board of directors or senior officer setting forth the procedures for protecting information systems and stored non-public information, and which includes a written incident response plan designed to promptly respond to and recover from cybersecurity event Periodic risk, risk assessments, sound familiar, updated as necessary to address changes to systems, types of data, or operations, continuous monitoring, or, or alternatively, annual penetration testing and biannual vulnerability assessments, notification to DFS within 72 hours of qualifying cybersecurity event, a CIO, um, CI, a CI's SO, CISO, responsible for overseeing the cybersecurity program, and risk-based limits on user access privileges to information systems with periodic review of such privileges, written policies and procedures governing information systems and non-public information accessed or held by third-party service providers, effective controls such as multi-factor authentication and encryption of non-public information at rest and in transit, annual certification of compliance by the board of directors or a senior officer of the entity. Regarding enforcement, uh, part 500 of the regulation states it will be enforced by the superintendent pursuant to and is not intended to limit the superintendent's authority under applicable laws. Uh, so that uh, that's New York, and um, they do expect that there will be some 
some enforcement this year. Sounds a lot like HIPAA, doesn't it? Um, and there's, there's more in the article, so you can go law.com. You do need an account. It is free to read, but it's on law.com, and there, of course, will be a link in the show notes. Um, Equifax settles class action breach lawsuit for $380.5 million. Uh, the, the breach from 2017, I'm sure we're all aware, has been settled for $380.5 million, and the, the Equifax may be required to pony up another $125 million if needed to satisfy claims for certain out-of-pocket expenses or losses. Um, and what does that mean for individuals? So anybody involved in the class action suit has until January 22nd to claim benefits. That means um, as of this episode, you have five days. Affected consumers can either sign up for 10 years of free credit monitoring for the usual for the equal cost of $125 or apply for cash payout, which would make them eligible for up to $20,000. A cash payout would cover serious repercussions from the breach, like losses from unauthorized charges to victims' accounts or cost of freezing their credit report. Equifax, which handles data associated with more than 820 million customers and 91 million businesses worldwide, has been under public scrutiny since September or September 2017 when it disclosed the data breach. Um, the attackers accessed information containing social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, some driver's license numbers. Equifax said it discovered the intrusion on July 29th, meaning attackers apparently had access to the company's files for nearly 12 weeks. So again, if you were impacted by the breach at Equifax, you're going to want to uh, put in your claim before the 22nd, which again gives you five days from the time of this recording. Take care of it. Last bit of news for the week. We have a report on HIPAA Journal. Healthcare data breaches predicted to cost $4 billion in 2020. The healthcare industry data breaches are occurring more frequently than ever. The healthcare data breach figures for 2019 have yet to be finalized, but so far 494 data breaches of more than 500 records have been reported to the HHS OCR and more than 41.11 million records were exposed, stolen, or impermissibly disclosed in 2019. That makes 2019 the worst year ever for healthcare data breaches and the second worst in terms of number of breached healthcare records. Healthcare industry now accounts for around four out of every five data breaches, and 2020 looks to, looks to be another record-breaking year. The cost to the healthcare industry from those breaches is expected to reach $4 billion in 2020. So there is a lot of work to be done. Healthcare is the target. Um, Other key findings of the survey include 96% of IT professionals said threat actors are outpacing medical enterprises. More money is being spent on marketing to repair damage reputations after a breach than is spent on combating the consequences of the data breaches. 35% of healthcare organizations do not scan for vulnerabilities before an attack. 87% 87% of healthcare organizations have not had a cybersecurity drill with an incident response process. 40% of providers surveyed do not carry out measurable assessments of the cybersecurity status. And 26% of hospitals respondents and 93% of physician organizations currently report they do not have an adequate solution to instantly detect and respond to an organizational attack. 93% of all healthcare providers do not have a way to detect and respond to an attack. That is crazy. 
That is going to wrap up our news for the week. We're going to move on to our hot topics. All right, so let's dive in to our hot topics. The first one, pretty cool stuff. This is reported on Bleeping Computer, but you can find it pretty much everywhere at this point. NSA's first public vulnerability disclosure and effort to build trust. So the NSA did report, as I've, I've mentioned a few times on a couple of different podcasts now, that there was a critical vulnerability discovered in Windows 10, and they shared it with Microsoft so that Microsoft could patch it. Kind of a new new era in building trust with Microsoft between vendors and the government. So it's pretty cool stuff. So the U.S. National Security Agency, NSA, started a new chapter after discovering and reporting to Microsoft a vulnerability tracked to CVE 2020-0601 and impacted Windows 10 and Windows Server Systems. In a phone conference with Bleeping Computer, that Bleeping Computer joined, sorry, NSA's Director of Cybersecurity, Ann Neuberger, said that this is the first time the agency decided to publicly disclose a security vulnerability to a software vendor. We thought hard about that. When Microsoft asked us, can we attribute this vulnerability to NSA? We gave it a great deal of thought, and then we elected to do so, and here's why, Newberger explained. She added that part of building trust is showing the data, and as a result, it's hard for entities to trust that we indeed take this seriously in ensuring that vulnerabilities can be mitigated as an absolute priority. Newberger also said during the media call that the agency will will make efforts towards building an ally to the cybersecurity community and private sector entities and will begin to share vulnerability data with its partners instead of accumulating it and using it in future offensive operations. Sources say this disclosure from the NSA is planned to be the first of many as part of a new initiative at NSA Dub Turn a New Leaf aimed at making more of the agency's vulnerability research available to major software vendors and ultimately to the public, journalist Brian Krebs reported. NSA re- redefining itself, we believed in coordinated vulnerability disclosure as proven industry best practices to address, to address secure security vulnerabilities, MSRCs. Principal Security Program Manager Michelle Grun added, through a partnership between security researchers and vendors, CVD ensures vulnerabilities are addressed prior to being made public. NSA's new approach to building trust with the public and its partners redefines the agency's cybersecurity mission. As U.S. Army General and NSA Director Paul M. Nakasone stated in July 2019, the Cybersecurity Directorate will reinvigorate our white hat mission, opening the door to partners and customers on a wide variety of cybersecurity efforts he added to the, at the time. It will also build on our past successes, such as Russia Small Group, to operationalize our threat intelligence vulnerability assessments and cyber defense expertise to defeat our adversaries in cyberspace. So that is really good news. NSA is not choosing to weaponize and instead choosing to share with the community. So I have mentioned on multiple occasions there needs to be collaboration. We have a little bit of collaboration here, so that is good news. Um, we have, uh, so I decided to do a, a HIPAA case study this week is part of our drill down, our um, hot topics. And so I have one here, OCR Settle Second Case in HIPAA Right of Access Initiative. And the reason I decided to share this one is because HIPAA Right of Access is going to continue to be 
uh, a hot topic for the HHS. So you, if you are refusing or, you know, I don't know, refusing is the best word. If you're intentionally dragging your feet or maybe not even intentionally dragging your feet when a patient asks for their records, you will be part of the problem. And um, they will continue to, it all it takes is one complaint. And you could end up paying millions as the result of one complaint because if they decide to open an investigation on you and find that your HIPAA program is in shambles, then you're going to end up with a, with a settlement. So here's the press release from the OCR. OCR settles second case in HIPAA right of access initiative. Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is announcing its second enforcement action and settlement under its HIPAA right of access initiative. OCR announced this initiative. Earlier this year, promising to vigorously enforce the rights of patients to get access to their medical records promptly without being overcharged in a readily producible format of their choice. Corinda Medical has agreed to take a corrective action plan and pay 85000 to settle a potential violation of HIPAA's right of access provision. Corinda is a Florida-based company that provides comprehensive health care, pri- I'm sorry, comprehensive primary care and interventional pain management to approximately 2,000 patients annually. In March of 2019, OCR received a complaint concerning a Corunda patient alleging that despite repeated asking, Corunda failed to forward a patient's medical records in electronic format to a third party. Not only did Corunda fail to timely provide the records to the third party, but Corunda also failed to provide them in a requested electronic format and charged more than reasonably cost-based fees allowed under HIPAA, which we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. OCR provided Corunda with the technical assistance on how to correct these matters and close the complaint. Despite OCR's assistance, Corunda continued to fail to provide the requested records, resulting in another complaint to OCR as a result of the OCR's second intervention. The requested records were provided for free on May 2019 in the format requested. But now it becomes negligent because now you got the advice from the OCR, you ignored them, and um, they had to come back again, and now it becomes negligent. For too long, healthcare providers have slow-walked their duty to provide patients their medical records out of a sleepy bureaucratic inertia. We hope our, our shift to the position of corrective actions and settlements under our right of access initiative will finally wake up healthcare providers to their obligations under the law, said Roger Severino, OCR director. In addition to the monetary settlement, Corinda will undertake a corrective action plan that includes one year of monitoring, the resolution agreement um, that I'm going to look at right now. So this is all available on the HHS website. If you wanted to review it, the, the link will, of course, be in the show notes. Um, so it is a, a long document, and I'm not going to read the whole document, of course. You know, it tells you who's involved, the, the facts of the case. So here's the facts. On March 6, 2019, OCR received a complaint alleging Corinda Medical is not in compliance with the privacy rule. The complaint alleged Corinda refused to provide an individual with access to her protected health information in a requested format. On March 18, 2019, OCR provided Corinda Medical with technical assistance regarding the individual's right of access to protected health information and closed the complaint. On March 22, 2019, OCR received a second complaint concerning Corinda's continued Noncompliance with the requirements of the privacy rule concerning access, and that's 45 CFR 164.524, sorry. On May 8, 2019, HHS notified Corunda Medical of its investigation of Corunda Medical's compliance with the HIPAA rules promulgated by HHS 
pursuant to the administrative simplification provisions of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Um, and Part A says, Corona Medical failed to provide timely access to protected health information from April 22nd, 2019 to May 12th, 2019. So you do have uh, a certain amount of time, and I, I believe it's 30 days. Uh, yeah, it's 30 days. And if you need more time than that, you, you have to notify them. But you cannot take more than 60 days. So um, they failed and they were fined. Uh, and then terms and conditions. So payment, HHS has agreed to accept the Corundo Medical, has agreed to pay HHS the amount of $85,000. It could have been worse. If they found that their HIPAA plan or they had no HIPAA plan at all, HIPAA um, compliance program in place, then, then it would have been worse. Uh, Corona Medical has entered into and agrees to comply with the Corrective Action Plan, CAP for short, attached as Appendix A, which is incorporated into the agreement by reference. If Corona Medical breaches the CAP and fails to cure the breach as set forth in the CAP, then Corona Medical will be in breach of this agreement and HHS will not be subject to the release set forth in, in the paragraph 2.8. Um, so... Pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1320A-7A-C1, a civil civil money penalty must be imposed within six years from the date of the occurrence of the violation to ensure that the six-year period does not expire during the term of the agreement. Corona Medical agrees that the time between the effective date of this agreement as set forth in paragraph 14 and the date in the agreement may be terminated by reason of Corona Medical's breach plus one year thereafter will not be included in the calculating the six years statute of limitations applicable to the violations which are subject of this agreement. So in other words, um, they have to carry out their part of the deal and then the six years are in place so that they could still face a civil suit. And so that could, um, you know, that, that could be another issue for them. They may, may have more, more financial loss as a result of just not supplying the um, patient's records as requested. And then it lists the policies that they, I said they need to review and revise. So Corona Medical agrees to the following, that within 30 calendar days of the effective date, Corona Medical shall review and to the extent revise its policies and procedures related to access to the protected health information consistent with 45 CFR 164.524. The revised policies and procedures shall identify Corona Medical's methods for calculating a reasonable cost-based fee for access to PHI, which we've reviewed, including the methods for calculating cost labor for copying the PHI requested by the individual, whether in paper or electronic form, and that's, you know, obviously the, the rate of the employee that's doing that, supplies for creating the paper, copy, or electronic form. If the individual requests that the electronic copy be provided on portable media, postage when the individual request that the copy of the summary or explanation be mailed and preparation of an explanation of summary of PHI if agreed to by an individual. And then HHS shall review and, if necessary, recommend changes to the aforementioned policies and procedures for individual access to PHI. Upon reviewing recommended changes from HHS, Corona Medical will have 30-day calendar days to provide revised policies and procedures. So it's not just a fine. So you can see that, that HHS is going to be paying really close attention to them here, and that could be considered a nuisance. Privacy training on individual access to protected health, so they do have to provide training within 60 calendar days. 
and then within 30 to calendar days of HHS's approval and annually, while under the term of this cap, Corinda Medical shall provide training to all workforce members at its facilities. Um, access status requirements, access request status requir- requirements within 90 days of receipt HHS approval of the policies and procedures required by Section VA1. And every 90 calendar days thereafter, while under the term of the cap, Corona Medical shall submit to HHS a list of requests for access to PHI received by Corona Medical. So there again, a little micromanaging. Um, obviously, it, it looks to me like they they had a pretty decent HIPAA program in place since there were no other notifications in this in this um, settlement, but. Um, you know, something as simple as a complaint about um, not getting their patient records in a timely manner can turn into a nightmare for any medical facility. All right. Uh, last up we have on MSP Alliance. This was written on uh, January 15th, so a couple of days ago. Time to review your internal MSP security. So another MSP was compromised. Um, and as a result, an airport in Albany was hit with ransomware. That MSP, I don't know what the story is. Their website hasn't been updated in 12 years, so it's hard to say. But it's time. So so written by Charles Weaver, co-founder of MSP Alliance. It is 2020. That means it's time to review your internal MSP security preparedness. What does that mean? Let's take a closer look. So these are the things that they suggest you check. First of all, administrator accounts. Exploiting shared administrator accounts has been the path where hackers have been have been successful in the past. Once successful, hackers will continue their attacks until they are blocked. Compromising administrator accounts gives the hacker a broad level of access to do what they wish. Guarding your administrator user accounts and distributing them with discretion is good first step. And along with that, auditing who has an administrator account, what they're using it for, and then MFA needs to be set up. That that's my ad lib. Lock down your vendors. It's no surprise that hackers ex- love exploiting MSP vendor tools. While they may not like it, vendor access into your network should be an area of focus for your internal security review. And then he wrote, "I would suggest providing limited administrator access for those, for only those occasions when the vendor needs and needs it. Persistent administrator access is now a thing of the past and no longer a best practice. Back up your data." Um, we use a backup and discover a backup and disaster recovery from Datto, and the reason we use that is because of what it does is it creates an image of the machine in the cloud, and then so if that machine is hit, this is me ad libbing by the way, if that machine is hit with ransomware, you can immediately be back up and running with the cloud version of that, which backs up daily. Scan the perimeter vulnerability scanning is an excellent service to provo- to deliver to customers. It's an even better idea for your internal MSP network. Performing regularly vulnerabil- regular vulnerability scans is a part of keeping a healthy and secure network. Password managers. Um, yeah, stop storing passwords on spreadsheets. Use a password manager. Uh, we use a password manager here. And then uh, make sure that that password manager is locked down as well with MFA and uh, strong password. And then get verified doing all these things to protect your MSP practice. Great. Now prove it. Just practicing security is no longer enough. Today you need to demonstrate your security best practices. Getting MSP verified by an independent auditor can help you communicate all the great things you're done you're doing to protect your MSP practice and all your customers. Otherwise, it's just bragging. 
Um, and he does admit that there are a lot of additional steps in, you know, MFA, password policies, strong password policies. All of these things need to be in place. The one thing I will say in most of the attacks that launched from MSPs, it did not seem that um, that MFA was in place in, in, in most of the attacks. So something to think about with uh, your security in an MSP. And I don't know if any, any any MSPs actually listen to this podcast, but if they do, you really need to think long and hard about what you're doing. Maybe you're not prepared. Maybe maybe um, maybe hire someone to come in and, and show you what needs to be done because the lives that are in being impacted, the businesses that are being impacted is astronomical. And the amount of money that's being lost as a result by patients by healthcare facilities, by businesses, by employees of your business. It just, it's, it's, it's a lot, a lot of money being lost, a lot of lives being upended, and it needs to be corrected. So I'll get off my soapbox now, and we're going to talk about HIPAA breaches for the week. All right, welcome back. Uh, I thought it was going to be a light week for HIPAA breach notifications, but a few of them popped up in the last 24 hours. So let's get right down to it and start with Quest Health Systems discovers additional patients impacted by 28 phishing attack, 2018 phishing attack. HealthQuest, now part of Nuvance Health, has discovered the phishing attack it experienced in July 2018 was more extensive than previously thought. Several employees were tricked into disclosing their email credentials by phishing emails, which allowed unauthorized individuals to access their accounts. A leading cybersecurity firm was engaged to assist with the investigation and determine whether any patient information had been compromised. In May 2019, Quest Health learned that the protected health information of 28,910 patients was contained in emails and attachments in the affected accounts and notification letters were sent to those individuals. The compromised Accounts contain patient names, contact information, claims information, and some health data. A secondary investigation of the breach revealed on October 25, 2019 that another employee's email account was compromised, which contained PHI. According to the substitute breach notification on Quest Health website, the compromised information varied from patient to patient, but may have included one or more of the following data elements. Dates of birth. Social security numbers, driver's license numbers, Medicare health insurance claim numbers, provider names, dates of treatment, treatment and diagnosis information, health insurance plan member and group numbers, health insurance claims information, financial account information, and PIN security code and payment card information. No evidence of the unauthorized viewing of patient data was uncovered, and no reports have been received to indicate any inpatient information was misused. Out of an abundance of caution, Additional letters were mailed to patients in January on January 10, 2020. Quest Health is now using multi-factor authentication on its email accounts and has strengthened security processes and provided additional training to its HQ employees on phishing and other cybersecurity issues. It's currently unknown how many additional patients have been affected. Um, MFA added after the fact. 44,000 patients impacted by phishing attacks on Intermed and Spectrum Healthcare Partners. Portland, Maine-based healthcare provider at Intermed is not notifying 33,000 patients that some of their protected health information 
has potentially been compromised as a result of a phishing attack. The attack was discovered on September 6, 2019. An internal investigation confirmed that the account was compromised on September 4, 2019, and the attackers had access to the account until September 6. Comprehensive review of the affected email accounts. was conducted, but it was not possible to determine what emails or attachments, if any, had been viewed by the attackers. The types of information in the compromised accounts varied from patient to patient and may have included patients' names, dates of birth, health insurance information, and some clinical information. A very limited number of patients also had their social security numbers exposed. Intermed started mailing breach notification letters to affected patients on November 5th, 2019. Complementary credit monitoring and identity protection services have been offered to patients whose social security number were exposed. Steps have now been taken to improve email security and training has been reinforced. Um, phishing attack impacts 11,308 patients at Central Maine Orthopedics. 11,308 patients of Central Maine Orthopedics part of Spectrum Healthcare partners are being notified that some of their protected health information was potentially viewed by an unauthorized individual who gained access to email account of one of its employees. Spectrum Healthcare Partners discovered the unauthorized access on November 14th and immediately secured the affected account. The investigation revealed the account had been breached on November 5th. A review of the email attachment in the account revealed they contained patients' names, dates of birth, addresses, health insurance information, clinical and treatment information, and amounts owed to Central Maine Orthopedics. While it was confirmed that the attacker remotely accessed the account, no evidence was uncovered to suggest patient information was obtained or misused. Affected patients were notified out of the abundance of caution on January 13th. Um, 4,564 record breach reported by Children's Hope Alliance. Barium Springs, North Carolina-based Child Welfare Agency Children's Hope Alliance has announced that a laptop computer containing sensitive information has been stolen. According to the substitute breach notice on the Children's Hope Alliance website, the laptop was stolen on October 7, 2019. Digital forensic firm was engaged to determine whether the laptop contained any sensitive information. The investigation is on, ongoing, but the initial findings show documents on the device contain information such as names, addresses, social security numbers, tax identification numbers, dates of birth, usernames and passwords, and medication and do dosage information. Breach report was submitted to the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights. Indicates 4,564 individuals have been impacted. The breach summary states that this was a hacking IT incident involving email. Um, it is unclear if the, at this stage whether this is an error or a separate breach or if the laptop was used to hack into the employee's email account. Um, now, I don't know. It's hard to say in late 2019 that a laptop is not encrypted, but I guess it's possible. Um, Enlo Medical Center continues to experience EMR downtime due to ransomware attack. I reported this on Cybersecurity Daily, but a California healthcare provider was attacked with ransomware in two weeks on its medical records. Systems are still out of action. Uh, Enlo Medical Center in Chico, California discovered the attack on January 2nd, 2020. Its entire network is encrypted including its electronic medical record system, which prevented staff from accessing patient information. Emergency protocols were immediately implemented to ensure care could still be provided to patients and only a limited number of elective medical procedures had to be rescheduled. So the good news is they were able to uh, 
um, avoid any serious problems. But the, there was a report a few weeks ago about the difference in time when using um, electronic medical records and having access to that versus paper medical records. And, and in, there is a, a decrease in care, level of care, I guess you could say, when the there's a delay in getting the information that they need. And so these ransomware attacks are doing just that. They're taking, they're taking what should be a technological issue and turning it into a human issue. So um, something to think about when you're, when you're reviewing your healthcare plan, not your healthcare plan, reviewing your cybersecurity plan and your HIPAA um, program to make sure that things are done the right way. And then last, um, well, that's it. I'm sorry. And low was the last one. So that's going to do it for our HIPAA roundup for the week. Um, we're going to move on to our HIPAA education piece. I want to point out that of the five, I think there was five there. Of the five, three of them were phishing attacks. MFA not set up. One was a stolen laptop. Encryption not set up, most likely. It doesn't say for sure, but most likely. If they if they did have encryption set up, they didn't have to report. So I would assume, HIPAA, uh, I would assume that uh, encryption was not set up. So four out of the five were easily preventable. Um, something to think about healthcare practices. All right, we're going to move on to the HIPAA education. All right, this week's HIPAA education piece, um, we're going to talk about sharing consumer health because it's not just HIPAA. It's also the F, there's an FTC Act involved with it as well. And I'm taking this straight from hhs.gov's website on HIPAA. Um, does your business collect and share consumer health information when it comes to privacy? You've probably thought about HIPAA, but did you know that you also need to comply with FTT, FTC Act? This means if you share health information, it's not enough to simply consider the HIPAA regulations. You also must make sure your disclosure statements are not deceptive under the FTC Act. So. We haven't really talked about sharing health information. We talked a little bit about it when we talked about uh, HIPAA and mobile applications, but um, not much more than that. And so essentially, you can, the short version is you can share information if the patient is aware, but let's go through all of the, all of the uh, rules here. Let's start with HIPAA. So HIPAA, HIPAA privacy rule requires certain entities to protect the privacy and security of health information. The rule also provides consumer with certain rights in respect to their information. This rule applies to you if you are a HIPAA-covered entity, a health plan, most health care providers, or a health care clearinghouse. It also applies if you are a business associate, a, p a person or company that helps a covered entity carry out its health care activities and functions. Here are some highlights of the HIPAA privacy rule requirements for covered enti entities and business associates. In order for you to use or disclose consumer health information, for commercial activities besides treatment, payment, healthcare operations, or other uses and disclosures permitted or required by the privacy rule, the, cons the customer must first give you written permission through a valid HIPAA authorization. HIPAA authorizations provide, a consumer, provide consumers a way to understand and control their health, health information. The authorization must be in plain language. Uh, if people can't understand it, then it isn't effective. So in other words, you can't use legal jargon. 
or or medical jargon. Think about who, what, when, and where, and why. Explain who is disclosing and receiving the information. What are they receiving? When the disclosure permission expired? Where where is the information being shared, and why are you sharing it? The authorization must include specific terms and descriptions. For example, if you want consumers to authorize you to share their health information, you need to tell them specifically how it will be used. For example, by a pharmaceutical company for marketing purposes, a life insurer for coverage purposes, or an employer for screening purposes. If you are a business associate, there's a crucial first step. The covered entity must give you explicit permission through a HIPAA business associate contract. So that's part of the BAA. There's a, an additional contract um, for that kind of disclosure. Uh, this means you cannot ask a consumer to sign a HIPAA authorization if the business associate contract does not expressly permit you to do so. The FTC Act, now, once you've drafted a HIPAA authorization, you can't forget the FTC Act. The FTC Act prohibits companies from engaging in deceptive or unfair acts or practices in or affecting commerce, among other things. This means that companies must not mislead consumers about what is happening with their health information. What does that mean in practice? You need to do more than just meet the requirements for HIPAA-compliant authorization. Your business must consider all of your statements to consumers to make sure that taken together they don't create a deceptive or misleading impression. Even if you believe your authorization meets all the elements required by the HIPAA privacy rule, if the information surrounding the authorization is deceptive or misleading, that's a violation of the FTC Act. So how do you comply with FTC Act? Review your entire user interface. Don't bury key facts and links to a privacy policy, terms of use, or HIPAA authorization. For example, if, you claim, if you're claiming that a consumer is providing health information only to a doctor, don't require her to click on patient authorization link to learn that it is also going to be viewable by the public. And don't promise to keep information confidential in large, bold-faced type, but then ask the consumer in a much less prominent manner to sign an authorization that says you will share it. Evaluate the size, color, and graphics of all your disclosure statements to ensure they are clear and conspicuous. Take into account the various devices consumers may use to view their disclosure information. If you are sharing consumer health information in an unexpected ways, design your interface so that scrolling is not necessary to find that out. For example, you can't promise not to share information prominently on a web page, only require consumers to scroll down through several lines of HIPAA authorization to get the full scoop. Tell consumers the full story before asking them to make a, make a material decision. For example, before they decide to send or post information that may be shared publicly, review your user interface for contradic contradictions and get rid of them. The same requirements apply to paper disclosure statements. Don't give consumers a stack of papers where the top page says their health information is going to their doctor, but another page requests permission to share their health information with a pharmaceutical firm. Uh, and then if you need more guidance, there are links here to official documents. And um, there is a, if you have a, if you have a health app, don't forget to consult the mobile health apps interactive tool. So there's also that. Now, it's interesting because I always think of the pharmaceutical com commercials where the show there's you know people on the beach playing and talk about the conditions that a certain pharmaceutical might treat, and then they'll real quickly ramble through all of the side effects. And that's kind of what this reminds me of. You can't just um, say, okay, we are going to share your information with your doctor, and then somewhere real quick, there's another little box that they're, you're asking them to put their initials in that says, we're also going to share this with a pharmaceutical company for marketing purposes. Um, uh, 
So I hope that helps with any um, any healthcare providers that might need to, to have that question answered. That is straight from hhs.gov, so it doesn't really get any more specific than that. And that is going to wrap up our this week's episode of the Proactive IT Podcast. So until next week, everyone stay secure and make sure you've applied all of those patches. <laughs>